So we're going to try and keep up with the library talk, but uh, you guys just go off. Don't worry. We can we can just jump in whenever. Uh, we'll keep up <laughs> as best we can. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. Your, guys, your, your house. Your, uh, your, we have uh, tons of non-library guests all the time. Of course, mm-hmm. of course. And uh, the only thing I know about libraries is that my dad builds them. So you're welcome. Uh, mm, thank you. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's, well, it's true, but like, yeah. It's, even <laughs> some in the uh, United States, in fucking Ohio. But I don't think that's relevant to you guys. But uh, When? Uh, sorry? Like what time period? I don't know exactly. Um, he goes there and like like does now maintenance stuff or something. Like he's an like, architect engineer stuff. But also does the online framework shrug? I once again, uh, if you're really interested, I can ask. But I never really, uh, never really understood anything from it. I'm sorry. We did a whole episode on library buildings. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Because library architecture changes over time. It goes from like the brutalist stuff that you see all over universities in the country, and they all look the same. They all like smell the same. Right. And then like you can go all over the country and go into university libraries. They're all built like exactly the same in this brutalist style. They're like Mormon churches. You got your like Carnegie, like upskirt libraries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, The big glass ones that are just the make they're they're mega churches. They're like mega church style buildings. Oh, that's what Mm. the downtown Seattle one reminds me of. Oh, the fucking (laughs) the fucking Suspiria. (laughs) Like the. It's got like a red hallway that looks like it's in like an Argento film. Smoke that shit. Hello. Now I'm in the Suspiria the- Red Room. <laughs> in the Seattle Public Library. Oh, wait, that's hang on. I got something good for that. Please, if you're hearing this, please get me out of the damn skin of Marink House. I'm so damn scared. I love the new uh, Joe Biden AI voice stuff. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Especially love like young people tricking their like their old parents, thinking that it's like an official presidential statement because old people just don't have the frame of mind. Yeah, it's so good, and, and I mean, for some reason, Overwatch players have really gotten into it, and so they just do these back and forths where it's Trump and Biden yelling at each other over Overwatch. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's better than playing the game, so you know, discourse. Hey. <laughs> Gotta find something entertaining to do while playing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's <laughs> All right, let's go. I'm Justin. I'm scholarly communications librarian. My pronouns are he and him. I'm Sadie. I work IT at a public library, and my pronouns are they, them. Uh, I'm Jay. I am a music library director, and my pronouns are he, him. We have guests. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Go ahead, Frank. Go. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I am Frank. My pronouns are they, he. I am a historian and MA student on science fiction and utopian studies. I am Leon, my pronouns are he, they, and I have two podcasts with Frank because I couldn't decide on one. Welcome. Sure, thank you. (laughs) What was that? (laughs) That was from the Iranian consulate, I think, or no, uh, UAE. They were doing um, a bit where the American uh, uh, diplomatic... Uh, officers were doing um, Texas. They were speaking Arabic with Texas accents because they were hosting a cookout or something to spread Texas culture. Oh no! <laughs> yeah. Did you just, did you just oh, say Iran? God. No, it wasn't Iran because uh, there's. I don't think it was the consulate there. <laughs> what was that? Two soundboards. That's nice. Okay. I like this. 
Oh no, oh, we're sorry. Gonna do it in soundboards. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. That will <laughs> maybe one more time. I won't. Uh, I won't. I won't take your, your your purpose. I do take my soundboard on other podcasts. So yeah, feel maybe free. like the dueling piano bars you can go to. Yeah, I've only listened to three episodes of you guys. Uh, loved all of them, by the way. So thank you so much oh, for having us. You. First of all. Yeah, of course. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, we love having Jay on. And uh, yeah, so we kind of had to. And uh, <laughs> listen to the ACAP episode. And I think uh, only mentioning that because it might be in this somewhat fakeish similar vein. I hope, kind of, sort of. Mm-hmm. Once again, I just trying to say that I really liked that episode. Thank you so much for having us. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've had a, a lot of discussions about like media, physical media. I mean, we just did like a physical media episode. And so we're going to talk about like manifestations of media and things like that. But first, I have hmm, I have a news story. Vamping, vamping. Ah, I've got too many drops. I've got a, I've got a, <laughs> That's like I've a got a call problem, up. Justin. <laughs> I've got a call I've lost in a drops episode. Nine eleven, baby. Uh, okay. North Dakota advances a bill to remove sexual content from libraries. I was kind of following this on my own. I haven't brought it up on the show, but North Dakota's had a lot of these bills. The thing that I think got me interested was this definition of like sexual content, which I find interesting because it's not like prurient. They're not arguing about pornography, right? Because I think I saw um, a Twitter mutual arguing with someone about like, this isn't pornography. Public libraries don't usually have pornography or porn collections. So what's the problem? And uh, there's this conflation of like sexuality with pornography in these laws. And so where is the definition? It is. Because libraries absolutely do have sexual content that isn't pornography is, is yeah. the thing. Like yeah. sexual education. Slipper. But they do have pornography. It's called romance novels. Ayo. I mean, this, yeah, would basically ban romance novels which is like a huge circulating part of the collection but that's what public libraries are for is is for romance novels actually i can 100 percent confirm that as somebody who both works in a public library and consumes a lot of romance novels that's what that's that's what ebooks are for born i was in a world of warcraft guild slashed romance novel book club so we would play oh, wow. wow and discuss the do you remember the 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 old vaginal fantasy podcast with yeah. um what's her name oh gosh i didn't came prepared i think somehow <laughs> you don't know about the vaginal fantasy podcast no i'm so yeah. i didn't do my due diligence i i'm so sorry felicia day Oh, her. She had a podcast. And then so we would follow along and they have like little sub podcast groups. And so we would follow along with it. But yeah, we it was constantly talking about like everyone in the group getting the book to the public library and like how hard or easy it was to get a tangent. The bill defines objectionable materials as content that shows or, or describes sexual activity, human genitals after puberty sadomasochistic abuse and just says and more great reporting charlotte observer (laughs) and more (laughs) and more um the one that perturbs me the most is the after so showing pre-pubescent genitals is fine then i guess someone pointed out pregnancy books would show naked babies and so they were like, oh, well, pregnancy, that's good. I figured that, like, the main, so to, if, you, if you if I can give, like, though, my, my two cents, uh, coming from a country that doesn't really, uh, has a long history of not demonizing sexual stuff, I, I do mean sexual stuff, like, you know, like, not, once again, not erotica or, like, pornography or anything like that. It's, I, once again, I don't, okay, so maybe you guys can meet me halfway because I don't know that much about North Dakota. Then again, all my American friends no also don't know much about North Dakota. So <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think I'm in good company. Um, 
<laughs> but uh, once again, yeah, I, I think it's a red state, right? I'd like once again not to. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. So yeah, the small the resources for people who want to educate themselves because I, I assume because red state and because the culture is there, you do not get like sexual education on uh, during uh, your high school period or whatever is the appropriate time slot for Americans to receive that kind of information. We get it in our first year of middle school, and it's like state mandated. So like there are no schools that are not allowed to essentially uh, like not tell you about like genital hygiene, like you know like all the whole like essentially responsible human being stuff. Like, like, yeah, that's uh, wait. They taught like like hygiene too in your sex ed, or is that yeah. just what it's general called? Like, is how not to get an STI, or is it like, and here's how you take care of it? Okay, no, well, it's it's pretty broad. Like, so because they didn't teach us how to take care of it. <laughs> no, I, I know, but it's like, you no, know, yeah. it's, it's pretty extensive. Like, both for like um, like women gen- genitalia, like men male genitalia, and so forth and so on, and like just like essentially all you need to know, like the, just the basics. And like pregnancy risk and how that works, uh, preventive measures, you know, anything really that comes to uh, <laughs> anything sexual, really. So once again, it could, could have been better, but it's like still at least all the basics were there. And I am appreciative of that. I had, I had cool parents, by the way, so I didn't need it. But still, I was in the class with a bunch of people who might not have had that cool uh, parents. So, you know, yeah. But my point is like I by removing it from the libraries you are like essentially denying one of the bigger avenues of uh, how do you call it? Of like educating yourself. If once again, because the school system is not taking care of that, from what I understand. Yeah, basically, and also like your parents can opt you out of a lot of things. It's, I mean, it really comes to a lot of discussions about like the rights of children to have individual access to knowledge, like a positive right of children to know things. Which was something actually interesting. I just saw Greenland. There's a bunch of people suing the Dutch government because children of single mothers were not allowed to, they didn't have a right to know who their biological father was until like the 70s. And the, oh wait, Greenland was a colony of Denmark. Denmark, sorry. Yeah. Don't worry. It happens all the time. It's always like, especially my American friends, like, yeah, Dan- Danish, Dutch, it's, it starts with a D, it's probably the same. The Bunch Dutch did do a lot of colonialism, like, to be fair. Greenland oh, is we a weird thing worse. for anyone to own. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, De- Denmark, like, once again, like, no, 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 let's not get into colonialism. That's that's a whole thing. <laughs> that's for later. That's, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's the news. That's um, the thing that got me about this that I wanted to bring up, too, is... It's exactly what I was talking about with the Moms for Liberty, where there's this conflation of school libraries and public libraries. So Mm -hmm. this bill is inclusive of public libraries, which are for anyone. So the argument that this is only about school libraries was just a wedge issue. It's just this conflation of school libraries with public libraries. And, oh, well, children can use a public library. Therefore, it's a children's library. Therefore, there can't be any sexuality in it, which is insane even also to... Yeah, to say that this children is a push that's been going on like quite quite some time, right? In like the wider American landscape, if mm-hmm. we if I'm allowed to call it that. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's also like um, this sort of, and we've talked about this before. Like not just the like like obviously they're trying to get rid of public libraries as well as school libraries by conflating. They're, they're trying to get rid of public anything, basically. Yeah. But also, even without nefarious purposes, most people conflate public libraries with as being something for children. 
Like I went to a friends of the library meeting at my public library and like all of the stuff that they reported on was all about children's programming. Every single thing was about children's programming. All of the stuff, like anytime you hear about, and here's all the great thing that public libraries do. Most of it is about kids stuff, which like, yay, we have stuff for kids. But like, also I think that only adds fuels to the flames of this kind of stuff. And it misses the point. I don't know, but yeah. It's not a. It's not an uncommon thing here. Yeah, it even has some spillover effects. Um, so in my like the social science that I done was uh, because once again I live in Amsterdam. I did some social science regarding uh, sex workers here, and I like I know some of them personally. And American senators like were were trying to by I don't know why, but like there was this wave of attacking the OnlyFans platform, and like so the OnlyFans platform then made restrictive like for a while. I believe it's now dead in the water and it's not a thing anymore. Once again, not an incident to myself. No offense to anyone. Um, it's just like that's that spillover effect by attacking that OnlyFans platform was also affecting Dutch sex workers, which I find like. Fascinating, really. Um, because once again, I love this interna- international interconnectivity and blah, 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 and so forth and so on. But yeah, that was such a weird little yeah, spillover effect from the American political arena, if you call it. Because the internet's American, don't you know? <laughs> <laughs> As an yeah, you're welcome. point uh, on that kind of thing of like, oh, the, this book, but it shouldn't be available, whatever. I, I want the few discussions I can talk about or that I remember from when I was still in high school, I think. Uh, it's about this, you know, classic children's author's book who was very racist and, you know, a children's book that was very racist and a whole controversy about it. Like, no, this shouldn't be in school libraries because, you know, public libraries aren't as much a thing here. But, you know, school libraries, a lot of them are there. And the question of like, well, but it's contextual. It's not like, oh, this book is being banned. This book isn't being available. It's not being so. No, it's just like this shouldn't be in this particular context. And like to think about th- these books of like that have some sexual content, which well, can mean anything. And I, <laughs> it, it's quite baffling that it's like, well, if if it's about the kid in terms of pregnancy, that's fine. But if it's about the woman, then it's not. But anyway, or the person giving birth. So yeah, it's uh, it's funny how these things they, they seem more focused or more charged in an American sense or an American landscape, but they do occur similarly in terms of just this conflation of like oh to not let this book is because like oh but then it's like oh but you're restricting books and become this whole moral panic about something that is a very isolated incident yeah i feel like librarians as a whole should read the um no future uh, queer theory and the death drive book um <laughs> aka fuck them kids the book <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into some uh, anti-natalism. Yeah, let's go. Yeah, be be gay. (laughs) Stop having children. The book. Yeah, kid check. Who's got them? Hands up. (laughs) Get rid of them. (laughs) Throw away our baby into the skin of Marine House. (laughs) My dad would love that statement. In this house. (laughs) The sentiment. It's too late now, but. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, well, anyway, that was legislation alert. That was the drop. So we're talking about versions, adaptation, translation, manifestations. We're going to talk a little bit about taxonomies. But uh, first off, uh, we've kind of jumped right into it. But plugs up front. Who are you? Where are you from? What are you doing? Why are you in my house? We're, we're Frank and, and Leon. We, we we do two podcasts on, on the absence of one. We do one that's more focused on literature and written things, which is the left page about literature and, and books and stories 
from a leftist perspective and uh, it covers everything and anything so from 200 years ago to a couple years back that's the ambitious goal but uh, we, we achieve it one episode at a time uh, and then there's here be media where we talk about the other media and that's the one that jay was on uh which is a, a great episode on velvet gold mine which which was amazing and uh, really fun it is everything and yes. uh, we, Which we, is can't, we can't escape that <laughs> yes. motto now. It's too late. It showed up in a recording we did the other day. So thank you, Jay. Uh, You're welcome. But, yeah, by, yeah. That, by the time this episode is out, probably the Babel episode is out. So I think... Yes. That book, uh, if you're in any, anyway, any interested in uh, librarians whatsoever or like broader academia and like colonialism and leftist perspectives, that's first off, go read the book. It's amazing. And then like, well, and then check out the left page episode. Okay. Well, that doesn't first read the book. Then, then if you want, you can check out the left page episode on it. That's uh, that's what we do. Yeah. Well, I already said where I'm from. Uh, well, I'm from Amsterdam. Frank is from Brazil, Sao Paulo. Woo. And uh, we're this, uh, yeah, we're this, we try to think of a, like a group name for both podcasts. Uh, we haven't filled, we haven't managed to scrounge up anything yet. So left page here media is the best we got two different podcasts one media one literature uh, yeah that's it like one big union but for podcasts of course yeah but it's a shame verso yeah verso books already took verso which is already a pretty good like pot on left politics yeah. and books but it took me years to notice that i was just like yeah verso whatever oh yeah. it's the left side of a left, left face of a book that's pretty good it's pretty good but not very obvious so <laughs> that makes it even better for some people, I think. It's uh it's this uh mental masochism. Just a bunch of special collections nerds. <laughs> so I was uh, asking Jay because I haven't had time to go through your whole back catalog. I was looking through it and I was trying to find like episodes that were related to this. But have you have you had a, a theme of talking about like adaptations of media, like going from one format to another, um and, and the consequences of, of, of that? Yes. Um, we had the year in review episode, like where we talked about all the media and stuff that came out in the year 2022. And uh, well, we talked a little bit about like uh, like <laughs> the Lord of Rings series and like this new uh, this high fantasy or like big fantasy TV show production, and how there's this like sense of writers wanting to make their mark on the thing that is already exists, and then change a bunch of things. And that can have that can be good. Uh, I I like the mindset. It is how, however, like based on our observance, is executed rather um, uh, controversially. I would say uh, that's like the best word I can think of it. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, no. So like we have we have talked about like adaptation because once again in media that's a big thing right now. Uh, like uh, it used to be like fantasy books for a while, and now I feel there's a shift in that the, a bunch of video game narratives are being picked up on. And uh, like for example, like we, we are right now uh, is airing the uh, The Last of Us, which is already a movie. It's just, it just has some interactive gameplay elements in it, but that's our professional opinion. <laughs> but doesn't mean it's bad or anything. Not trying to step on anybody's toes, but yeah, but that success, the success of that TV show, and this and success. Uh, it's probably going to herald in this uh, new era of I conjecture, speculative, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I would suggest that this herald first, folks. Yeah, this is, <laughs> uh, if I'm wrong, then you don't know me. Um, no, I didn't. I didn't say that. I'm just going to gaslight you immediately, leave me alone. Um, that's <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, I, I think this is going to like uh, mean like being picked up on a bunch of video game narratives, which are it's going to be interesting because at least with prose, you have prose, you have literature, you have <laughs> you have something to hold on to. Video games, not so much, but it might be a good thing, like not having so much to adapt. And this gives a lot more room for 
uh, authorial reinterpretation. And it might be interesting. I don't know. What do you feel, Frank? Frank? Yeah, uh, we we've spoken a bit about this uh, in terms of at least the some Star Wars stuff. Uh, we've done Ender oh, yeah. a bit, which is its own thing, but we've also done like Knights of Star Wars, Knights of the Old Republic, and how that relates to the Star Wars universe broadly and that kind of thing. So, we, and especially the Witcher episode where we sp- talked about the box, but we will talk about the video game at some point. So adaptation has been quite recent in our minds. But oddly enough, <laughs> for for because a long time ago the left page was me and another Brazilian friend and we've we've always talked a bit about translation here and there but we've never sat down to talk about it which is quite interesting uh, I mean and now recently there's the as Leon mentioned the Babel episode where language is everything so yeah that's that's the example we have to give but there's just it, it's always something on our minds because of well the, the simple fact that's like and, and now with Leon like le- English is not our native language and yet here we are doing a podcast in English or do two podcasts now so it's how to translate and and well both meaning sense books and and what books we're talking about how we're consuming those books like that that is always present i think so yeah the, the translation episode eventually from a more theoretical sense will come so yeah i can promise that at some point but so far it's uh it's been an underlying subject, so it's nice to talk about it here in, in another po- in another great pod. So yeah, you do really have to read Hamlet and the original Klingon. Yeah, no, definitely, of course. It's Speaking a matter of, of adaptations, mm-hmm. and when we were uh, brainstorming. Because, you know, obviously, if I go on, you know, if any of us goes on another podcast, we have to have them on and vice versa, right? Um, I was like, okay, how the hell did we get y'all on? And (laughs) they, you know, they brought to me this idea of like, um, translation and adaptation, which in library world, so often we're on the defensive about, oh, of course, audiobooks are are books and are reading. Of course, ebooks are books and are reading. Graphic novels, of course, are books and are reading. You know, all this sort of thing. You know, film adaptation versus a book, that's not necessarily so much in the discussion. But like, we're always on the defensive of like, yes, if listening to a book is easier or better or more fun for you, that of course counts as reading that book. However, what I think that leaves out is how there are differences in Definitely. how you interact with different medium, even if it's the same exact words or the same exact text. And I feel like how if we're always on the defensive about it, we actually lose out on opportunities to explore those differences, not necessarily negative differences. Sometimes I do think there are, uh, but there are also positive differences too. And so I thought that'd be a really cool like, oh, yes, come on. We haven't had people on to talk about this aspect of library collections and how we interact with information. So, yay. Yeah, definitely. I think um, what is always interesting, and I try to, on the left page, I try to listen to the audiobook of the book that we are talking about every uh, time. Like I read the book mostly, and when I'm on, when I'm like uh, doing my commute, I listen to the audiobook because uh, I don't want to like read on the subway because I'll miss my stop because I have ADHD and I have only like five brain cells to rub together when it comes to concentrating. And uh, besides that, it is. Uh, but I always like try to like talk about like oh the quality of the audiobook and so forth and so on. And I think it's like really interesting. It is really interesting because if you really want to get into the historical perspective, the oral tradition outdates the written tradition by quite a bit so if, if you like this whole condescending attitude towards audiobooks i personally never got it and understood it and but like jay said like i think it's very important to acknowledge the differences and distinctions 
I think that is a valuable if it's, this is done in a um, like positive, how to say this, um, good faith type of way. So yeah, I think that's very interesting. And we should keep in mind that, you know, different cultures also might have different traditions and so forth and so on. Yeah, and same thing with like translating between languages as as well. Like I um one of the one of the books I we've been talking about, maybe having me come on left page to talk about is a perfume, the story of a murderer, which is originally in German. And I own both copies and I was going to try to read it when I was learning German, but my German never got good enough. But it's like, I love the English version, but I've never gotten the chance to actually read the original French version. Same thing with like, uh, Haruki Murakami, like novels. Like I, one of my worst qualities is that I love his books. Um, <laughs> but I've never read them in Japanese. I, I've only read them in English, right? So there's just so many interesting things here about like, are you reading, what are you reading the real one? Have you actually read it? If you've only read this version or if you've only listen to the audiobook like there's don't just talk so to me about that. the anime if you haven't read the manga you know exactly <laughs> <laughs> i have the manga of hamlet so <laughs> yeah and that's actually i was gonna make a joke about the manga bible earlier but yeah it's a good adaptation but actually i did just have this with an anime because i watched an anime went and read the comic and it was completely different and it was bizarre because that doesn't normally happen, but it was just completely, uh, they rewrote the characters to be different for whatever reason. I think because the comic book kind of sucked. So someone just touched up the story. Yeah, 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 yeah. The source material. Yeah, this yeah. was, this was, uh, I only know Old Testament. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- this was, this was, uh, I just got reincarnated as, uh, an Israelite fleeing from Egypt uh, in my mid 30s. That's the name of the anime. I love a good isekai. <laughs> yeah, good isekai. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, actually, there's also a thing of when we're talking about physicality of like the, the differences between like reading an audiobook, it's there, there's a lot of things like how good is the person who is narrating a bad narrator can really ruin an audiobook, right? Oh, yeah. But also like physicality of books. And I want to mention book art really quickly because I've got this recreation of the Jefferson Bible that the uh, Smithsonian put out and when they put it out, they like, I don't know if you'll be able to see this in the camera, but they artificially yellowed the pages and any place where he had like pasted something, they recreated the uh, little pasted pieces. So they had to go through and add this into all the books that came out. Uh-huh. So this was so cool. And I had to, I had to buy it, but you can see, cause he like, copy, he literally like cut and paste four versions of the Bible next to each other. So you can see there's little outlines of the original pastes and everything. So it's, it's like an image recreation rather than the text. Yeah. Like a thing I think about all the time with regard to this is um, the book house of leaves. Oh yeah. Um, like house of leaves is like, the text is in different fonts, depending on whose character, like what part of the story you're in. The different words are always in different colors. There's footnotes, the way the text appears on the page, like twists and curls and goes through and all sorts of stuff. Like I have no idea how that would even work as an ebook because so much of it is that like physical experience of like turning the page and like holding this brick in your hand. That's why I felt so weird about when I read infinite, like I finally read infinite jest and it was as an ebook because that way I could carry it around with me all the time (laughs) and not carry around a thousand page book. Uh, with me everywhere, but it felt so weird because it's like half of the point of reading Infinite Jest is having like six bookmarks in it, right? Um, and so there's just like sometimes even just like the physical experience of reading it is I, I have no idea how those types of um, aspects would be translated when I feel like it's part of reading it, right? And and footnotes too. I know that when I've read nonfiction as an ebook, which I 
usually read an ebook because, again, they automatically return, so I don't have fines and uh, I can carry it around on my phone. But a lot of the times I caught myself not following up on footnotes like I would if I was reading a physical book because it involves clicking and going away from where I was and then having to navigate back as opposed to just being able to put a finger in where I was and flipping to the back to read the footnote and flipping it back or the books that actually have them as footnotes on the page that they're relevant to. So there's a lot of information that gets could get missed out that way. And I'm, I've am i never listened to nonfiction with footnotes as an audiobook, so I don't know how it normally gets translated. But um, yeah, that's that's an interesting thought too. I'm not an audiobook person, unfortunately. I'm not either. Uh, I used to a lot. Actually, I've, I've listened to a lot of memoirs on audiobooks because if the person is still alive, they normally get them to read it. Um, and so then it's like, oh, I'm listening to Laura Jane Grace, like read her book, Tranny, right? Or I'm listening to Gore Vidal read one of his memoirs. That's I was listening to a Gore Vidal memoir when I had my head on collision in front of a church after having a hookup on Easter. <laughs> like <laughs> That was my like, I was too gay and God tried to kill me moment. <laughs> um, but like normally wow. they get the author to read them. But I notice that like I zone out when I listen, even if I'm driving, like I will zone out while I'm listening to an audiobook. So I just can't listen to them. If I listen to podcasts, it has to be a podcast I don't have to pay too close attention to. That that kind of thing. Like one thing I in some of the one of the articles I shared that with audiobooks, like even though the reading comprehension, if you are a person who can actually pay attention to an audiobook, which I'm not necessarily one of them, but if you are, the reading comprehension isn't too different, actually. That's normally where a lot of these like defense like no they do count is because there have been studies of like the reading comprehension and whatnot is actually not too different between these mediums and so it's fine however there are slight differences and one of them is that with reading like with your eyeballs um that a lot of reading is actually back reading it's like your eyes going and scanning back and forward all while you're reading and like catching things behind as you missed or like if you do zone out for like a second or whatever you can oh wait and go back and, and find where you were whereas you can't necessarily you don't have that sort of back reading when you're listening. And if you do zone out, it's harder to go back and find where you were. And so the type of comprehension and how you comprehend is different just because you don't have that type of eye movement anymore. And I was like, that's why I can't pay attention to audiobooks is because I can't go back and immediately find like where I was because I'm not having that back reading. I had no idea that that's what was happening. There's also a spatial element to recall, I find. Uh, like you were saying with yeah, Infinite Jesters, though, you can't put six bookmarks in it. But I remember if something I wanted to look at was on the verso or the recto side of the book, and I'll like go back and go, oh, okay, I know it's, I know it's in this shape of a paragraph, so I know I can I go back too. and do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And sometimes if I can't think of something, I'll literally, but I know I've read it, I'll literally go and stare at my bookshelf and that will jog the memory out. Just staring at the book will do it half the time. This happened all the time to me in grad school because it was just all the books for the class because it's like 15 books per class. So then I would sit there and go, hmm, right. That's what I was thinking about. And I go back to typing my little discussion board for the 15th one of the week. Yeah. I mean, when, when reading and when, try, when trying to write academic stuff, like, because uh, I I compare the, an original version of a novel I read in English, then I have the physical version as well. And when I'm trying to find quotes and stuff, I look for, and a lot of the bibliographies in English, 
I look in the English ebook version because I can uh, page and word search. And then it's like, okay, how is the paragraph looking so I can find the correspondence in the physical copy? So that real, like, how is the book looking? How is it shaping? What? How does this dialogue end? How does this paragraph start? That is, those are the bookmarks I've, I put to myself, especially when doing this reference work. And especially, in, I, 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 I do want to ask how, how does... Uh, non-fiction audiobooks do footnotes because uh, that that strikes me as incredibly weird um, and I think a, a lot of what Sadie said that how do you I mean I am against endnotes on principle but when that happens uh, it, it really <laughs> good uh, it really becomes a sense of like okay is it worth looking at the end of this file to find to check this information or not and, and in a physical book that's still a hassle but it's a smaller hassle and if it has hyperlinks, fine. Then you click there. It's like, oh, I can check. Okay, that, that that's helpful. Click, click back. But if it doesn't, uh, and a lot of the times it doesn't with certain academic books and getting access to those, it's, yeah, it, it's difficult the way you're, we handle to try and parse this information out and what choices we have to make when reading. And I'm, I'm not that much of an audiobook person. I kind of want to be, but I'm not sure how much I can. But I, I realized certain things that I would have to read over again and again, and I would if I had a physical version. I don't bother when listening because, and I think it's one of the things that you in our outline before we, we talked that mentioned how an audiobook is a lot of the time something that you listen to when you wouldn't otherwise read. It's not necessarily one replacing the other, but it's occupying a space that won't be filled otherwise. And yeah, that's, um, yeah. I put that, that's a quote from um, uh, the BBC article, I think, or maybe one of the other ones, but yeah. Yeah, and I think that I try to do the same thing, but in, I don't know, at least a novel, it... Uh, there's a lot that like sometimes takes a, a, a little longer to listen to or to understand, even when reading. Like to, to give a, an example that Leon will like the the Witcher audiobooks, and they're the fight scenes. And I don't pretend to understand the fight scenes. I listen to them, I hear the words, and that's fine. Uh, but if I was reading, I would try to okay. So th- he's positioned here, and his opponent's kind of like here. Okay, maybe like this. Whereas I'm listening, it's like, okay, I don't, I, I don't care. So I don't know if I'm, I'm less diligent when listening. So it doesn't necessarily work for me, but it's, it's a way for me to listen to something that if, if I want to read this other thing in another time, this I can listen to and, okay, I can gloss over this, which isn't as important to me, but I can still gather generally what is happening in the plot, in other discussions and other things. To really quickly, uh, quickly give a positive example of it is that, because I agree with all you're saying, it is, uh, but in the audiobook version of Baby, that the book that once again we already talked about it i'm so sorry but this uh this once first this author was already successful they had like a successful uh, trilogy called the poppy wars and so the the investment into that audiobook was probably going to be higher than your average audiobook because they didn't knew they had they had, like a bunch there was a market for it and they did it in a really interesting way because they had just had a different voice actor because once again they're all voice actors because uh, you can't just you can't just let the author read a book. Come on, like it, it is an actual discipline, it's an actual talent to do a good uh, audiobook. I think, and but that's beside the point. They just had like a different voice read the footnotes. So like for a bunch of people, that then like 
shifted their attention back to it like oh wait that's something different and it allows them to like mentally catalog the information that is then presented in a fundamentally different uh manner and they even like because the, once again the book has so much uh about translation they even got like a native speaker to say every single native word when a native uh when in, like in their native language a certain word became interesting or whatever it doesn't really make sense if you haven't read the book i'm so sorry but it, it's cool but i also then immediately acknowledge that that is a that's a that's, that's a high production and uh, audiobook that just simply is not representative of the larger audiobook landscape. And with like audiobooks, I was when I was doing a little research for this episode, and I saw I think it was this week or last week one of the women who was sort of one of the pioneers, or that's probably a word we should not use anymore, isn't it? Pioneer of one of the like people who first started doing something. I won't tell Twitter. Yeah, please don't cancel me, Twitter. She. Uh, a woman who died like this week or last week was who was one of like the first people to sort of like do audiobooks. And so I was like, oh, I didn't realize they were like that old. Um, and so when I was going and looking and originally like audiobooks, like obviously ever since we've had recorded sound, we have had recorded spoken word, right? But then I was looking and it was through the Library of Congress and a, 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 um, a, and a blind um, advocacy group that started in 1931, the Talking Books Program, which then I think is still around called Books for the Blind. So audiobooks, as we sort of know them, start as an accessibility tool. Right. They are for the purpose of people who do not have sight or the ability to read with their eyes being able to read books by listening to them. And a similar program starts about a little under 20 years later um, through the New York Public Library and their women's auxiliary unit. Um, and one of the women in that who starts the recording for the blind and dyslexic slash later turns into what's called learning ally. And this was recording books inspired by like the need for soldiers who are coming back from World War II who had lost their sight in in uh, in war and recording books uh, for them and so audiobooks have probably have been around for a lot longer than like probably critics of them probably want to imagine that they have been around and like they start out as like a yes if you are a person who cannot look at a page and read the words off of it here is an alternative for you and we will hire people who can read the books and we will record them and then so you can have them that has been a thing for god a little under a century now and so i just i i thought that was cool because i didn't even think that they were that old i don't know why they wouldn't be yeah. you know it's like oh duh of course they would be that old and probably for that that reason as well and so i i doubt this was like a hot side of discourse <laughs> you know in the 30s and 40s of like oh that's not actually you're not actually reading huckleberry finn if you're having a nice lady read it to you and record it <laughs> like you know so i thought that was interesting when i was um going through and looking about like the history of of audiobooks and and what they were for and all that i think a recent push as well for audiobooks has been well once again uh, if, if more people get interested in audiobooks you can stream it to them and like you know there's a mm -hmm. big rise in uh, audible like once again it's it's bought by amazon if it gets bought by amazon it's going to be a market at least there's going to be an attempt at it's uh trying to be created as a market and whether or not it'll be successful it's like a whole thing that i won't bore you guys with but um other than that it is you know so you can then revoke that access as an audiobook and also as an ebook and you know like once again the the the, the thing that everybody loves is of course subscription services and we all want 
want more subscription services. Nobody, why wouldn't you want a subscription services? It's great. It's amazing. Who wants to own physical media? You don't have a house anyway. Shut up. So that's, that's like, you know, that's, that's their general take, I believe, or that's like the general disposition that those people have uh, to make those decisions. I'm not sure if either of you know this. Or if just by like being in now our orbit for any amount of time, you've picked up on this at all. But things like Audible or Kindle or anything like that, like especially if it's like a subscription service, most of the time, like one, libraries can't get those services. Like libraries don't have Audible, right? And if something is exclusive to Audible, oh, look, we've got this famous actor to do an audiobook of this great book, and it's an Audible exclusive with the full cast and all that. Libraries can't get that yeah, uh, because it's exclusive to that platform, and Amazon won't do library licensing. If a romance novel by like a queer author is only on Kindle Unlimited because they're just, just getting started, and that if you're going to start writing romance novels and you want to get any sort of following and money, you do Kindle Unlimited until you can get yeah. on your feet enough to actually have it on other platforms libraries can't circulate they can't get a copy of it Ah. so with this that that's i think a thing to consider is like with this push towards like audiobooks and ebooks um and especially towards like subscription services for these things more and more that means libraries then cannot uh, collect these materials and people are forced to buy them and by buy them i mean rent a license to a platform that will um allow them to read and or listen to it under very limited circumstances yeah i think it's very important to keep in mind that these big like not big like tremendous uh, colossal whatever you want to call it that these companies like Amazon and so forth and so on, they are not doing anything with the perspective of short-term profits. And a lot of people are like, well, I think paying a couple bucks for like, you know, unlimited access is a beautiful uh, ten- uh, transformation of the internet's capabilities. I'm like, uh, even if it was, it, this statement on itself, we can have a nuanced discussion about, if you will. I won't, don't worry. But it is, <laughs> um, it, it, it is <laughs> trying to be respectful here. But I, in my very humble opinion, it is tremendously short-sighted. And once again, you don't have to know it in and outs, but even I think someone who like knows less about like economic and like business workings and so stuff like that and so forth and so on can see a very clear pattern in these gargantuan companies, essentially, like what they want on like short and long-term is control. They don't, they have... <laughs> They have so much money to burn. They don't care about short-term profits. They do care about restricting, granting, and distributing access. I know Labor Cal already talked about this better than I ever could. But uh, yeah, essentially same like uh, same thing like that. Like you know, they they want like to be in charge of who gets access to what. Right. Like as we mentioned in um, our physical media episode, it's not so much that like the format itself. It's not that ebooks or audiobooks are quote, a problem, it is capitalism and what it's trying to do with access (laughs) to those materials as opposed to other materials. That's always the capitalism. That is the problem, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's the way this access is controlled, really. The problem is, like, the problems with audio, like, e-books and audiobooks we already talked about, like, retention, those are the actual, like, problems with them. The the whole licensing thing, that's not a... The the whole problem that libraries have and that we get licenses, we don't own e-books or audiobooks, neither do you as a consumer you have a license, right? You don't actually own the things that you stream or even the things that you purchase through like Kindle or whatever. That's why the whole thing with the 1984 
which is a very funny book for this to happen to, but like disappeared off everyone's Kindle because the license got pulled. This was like an early Kindle big story, right? I knew people this happened to who were librarians and they were like, oh, well, yeah, that's licensing, man. That kind of non-ownership of the the physical media it, it it's it's a problem for preservation ownership but uh yeah like leon's saying the the whole goal is to control the market yeah or at least a large enough chunk of it so you can like cartel your way into you know like just talking to the two other big companies and you can like well let's fuck over everyone essentially because you know we will make so much money off of it like there's a strong sense of class unity among those people let's let's just uh, keep it at that this doesn't really fit into necessarily anything but i, I just kind of want to say it there's one time the opposite happens throughout the history of streaming and that is <laughs> still a baffling move that as far as i'm aware has never been repeated uh, by apple who like forcefully put youtube's album onto everybody's phone and i remember waking up up that day because i still had an iphone back then like i never listened to a youtube song in my life that's not I'm not trying to grandize or anything but well, maybe a little but other than that it is just like <laughs> this this baffling decision of like no you're going to listen to this this is going to take up space on your phone and that i think that ironically is so much more dystopian than the other way well it's still fucking horrible whichever way but the other way around like we we restrict this usage of your space on your phone that you have to listen to it like you don't have to but like we restrict like the like the maneuverability that you have the maneuverability then expressed as space on your phone like the choices like what you put on your phone is that is oh that's that's terrible that's uh yeah Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Sadie. Oh, I was just going to say, like, for me, when I heard that that happened, it's it's more invasive. You know, it's like you're, yeah, something's being forcefully pushed upon you. And I think a lot of the debate is sort of an an opt-in, opt-out. Like, you didn't opt in to have YouTube on your phone, but you do opt in to paying for a subscription for something without necessarily knowing what the exact terms of that are. So, like, you know, you buy an ebook. Well, yeah, you're renting it, but you can also, there are also some places that will, they were literally, literally just give you the EPUB file and you can store that somewhere. And anytime you, you know, anything that can read an EPUB, you can read that book. So it's more akin to owning a physical copy. But yeah, I think it's not, not to buzzword, but the kind of the matter of consent here really, really screws with people's heads because they're consenting to something that they don't entirely understand as opposed to being having 1984 forcefully taken away from their device to YouTube forcefully being put onto their device. It's, it's much more boundary breaking. So people are like, oh no, that's not okay. But when it's, you know, Netflix getting rid of a show that was only ever on Netflix and will never be seen outside of the light of their archives, if they even have it sort of thing is people don't think about that as a violation as well. You know what I mean? If that makes any sense at all. I yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And like, because, and I think this comes back around to like how we're always on the defense of it, defense about these things, but like the way that, you know, like subscription models and licensing models and issues with physical, uh, physical, physical, <laughs> a uh, physical versus digital media, and like ways of collecting it, and like the licensing around that. Because those that discourse and those arguments take up so much space, and because so often any arguments where we have to be on the defensive about no, it is reading, we promise. Like those take up so much time that we can't then actually, in good faith 
have discussions about, well, there actually could be a retention problem here, or no, this does have a benefit here because of X, Y, Z reason. And then being able to go, okay, so then what do we then do about any sort of deficiencies or this actually has an advantage on this side? So how can we maybe translate that advantage? Like we can't then actually deal with the differences with translation with different manifestation. Um, that's a library word um, with these things, because we're always either on the defense against bad faith arguments or capitalism's happening. So. <laughs> yeah. It's um, on the track that Sadie was going with streaming. It's ties into this problem of like the preservation of issues. Like, Netflix probably doesn't have an HBO plus probably don't have really good archives. So there's a very good chance. Like they'll just lose things. I think when, when uh, Nancy came on, she was talking about when something goes missing, like, uh, like uh, Metropolis, Metropolis just entered the public domain. We don't have the original mastering of it. And like, it's all down to like, if someone saves something, but that also means if you don't have a physical version, there's this issue of versioning. There's this issue of what's the final product. So like a show can come out with like really shitty subtitles and then they can change it. They can fix it. That's not going to happen if you had bought the DVDs. But like they could also go in and remaster the audio. They can go in and make changes. This particular, I was thinking about this with like video games because it's kind of where it's the biggest. Like you can just ship a broken game these days. And it's like, yeah, we'll fix yep. it in like two or three months. But like we got your money is the important part. That We'll fix it like over the next couple months. It'll be playable. And then the next couple of years, it'll be okay. And it, yeah. Except in the case of the of Witcher Three, in which case they put out an update that just broke it uh, for a lot of people. For me, twice, oh, yeah. two different yeah. updates broke it twice for me. Same. I didn't have any mods; it just broke. Whereas, like with probably the example most people know around, like like with versioning and preservation and whatnot, that's still even an issue, like with physical media sometimes, um, because as as we have mentioned before, George Lucas will not give the original theatrical cut print of Star Wars. Uh, I think of the entire original trilogy, but it might just be New Hope. But I think it's the, of the entire original trilogy oh, yeah. of um, to the Library of Congress for preservation. Uh, because that is not his quote original. That is not his actual vision of it. The all of the mangling he did to them is quote his vision of it. And like one George, you're not the only one who worked on those films, and the only reason they're good is because Marshall Lucas edited them too. <laughs> <laughs> um, like just because you don't like that version, a lot of people do, and that also deserves its own act of preservation. And now those that preservation happens via piracy, which yay piracy. We're a pro piracy pod, uh, podcast. Ooh. And so that sort of you know what is the final product? Like that does happen with. Uh, physical items but then like yeah which is the version of star wars is there a, a difference between them and it reminded me of them um, and i put this in the notes um h bomber guy great youtube video essay person create had the, has this great video essay about director's cuts and the sort of uh, phenomenon around them and mainly talking about uh, blade runner the series of different versions of blade runner that you can that you can get and doesn't mention Star Wars until the very end, but how this sort of like how director's cuts in and of themselves, like, oh, 
there was capitalist meddling and they, the, the artiste, the singular artiste who made this entire film. Don't you know it's one person who makes a film even though there's actors and, and every, all these other things in it? It's their singular vision and they can finally release it and how that's become a product in and of itself now. And so I can only imagine with like digital only releases now, it's like, okay, there's the theatrical cut and then there'll maybe there'll be like a digital cut, like a digital version that you can get. How many times is like the director decides, oh, well, shit, I missed, you know, uh, I don't like what my editor did there. I'm going to change it and just redo your digital copy over and over and over and over again. And then what implications does this all have for what versions libraries are expected to buy and circulate and how that even happens? God help the editors. God help the editors. And the librarians, of course. And the librarians. Yeah, yeah. You're almost expected to have like a media additional edition specialists to be brought on to like either librarians or like i don't know outfits or what have you that like knows which one is the best and i don't know and just like the metadata for it because like additions is like something when we create metadata for items that we pay a lot of attention to um i know justin put in the notes i don't know how much we want to go into ferb or wimmy an RDA, you know, um, in it, but like the, the whole idea of, well, there are different manifestations of this particular work and there are different whatevers of it. Like that is something we pay a lot of attention to in librarianship. And when you get an item to catalog, you have to be like, okay, there's a lot of editions of this and it might be even the same words, but just with a different cover, but it still matters that you have that version with that cover on it. And so that's the record that you like pick to catalog it with and everything. So it's something we care a lot about. And and so just like with, if things can like, when the question of like, what's a final version or if edits can keep being made, especially to a digital copy that you might have, I have no idea how that's going to complicate like cataloging my like, this is just a weird thing in my library but speaking of like additions and changes there's this book series that comes out that's published by like history of faculty and one time for one of the editions they forgot to change you know the the copyright title information the metadata left page they didn't update it from the last volume they missed it and so it when we cataloged it our cataloger said no that's the information i'm cataloging so they cataloged the wrong information on purpose because our cataloging rules say that's how she has to catalog it instead of the the title that was on the front which is insane because you make the rules you could change them but you're the cataloger right but that's sort of why i find cataloging silly you catalog a book that the way it tells you to be cataloged justin you let the book describe itself yeah (laughs) a thing books can do just channel yes. your your ancient book whisperer instincts. It's just <laughs> that it's is the thing about RDA. I agree with sadly is the letting a letting an item describe itself, even if there are mistakes in it. And like move a candle ever so closer to the book if it doesn't give you what you want. Like just mm-hmm. as implication. That's an interesting thing because in, in terms of like uh, the artistic aspect of it as well. Because like when is the product or the art or the thing done? Like the, in this case, then it's never done. Then it's like jo- clearly George Lucas never got over Star Wars. Kept doing different and different versions again and again. 
And like we, we, Leon had mentioned before, and at least in the notes, in terms of like music and, and albums and different uh, versions of songs that maybe kind of uh, remastered, whatever. And but there's only one version of that. It's not like a new album, a new remastered version. No, it's it's re-updating that old album or that kind of thing. And like, when is? <laughs> I feel like that is a problem that that, that has a lot of ramifications. That we've been talking about for for editing, for cataloging, for storing all that. But from a, an artistic and like from the the people involved in creating or that are doing this it's like you're you're not moving on you're, you're getting stuck on that particular version that's kind of like move on do something else uh that's ideally that's where we'd we'd go artistically like that okay that was shit or that had an issue or that had a problem yeah live with it for once this uh yeah show your journey of improvement i think is is, is so cool exactly like yeah like this update culture the, the way i i, I phrase it quite dramatically uh i believe and GitHub, <laughs> yeah, and version control, yeah, the the gitification of media. <laughs> Because it hides all of that, and like it, it's, I think it, 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 it. This is a dramatic way of putting it again, but like I think it stunts this development or, or this artistic growth or, or creation. That's like, yeah, this this had problems, this had issues, and like that's 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 how it goes for everyone. It, to be to update it, it should be like an extreme luxury and not something that should be that accepted. Like the travesty or, or, or the absolute crime that is uh, this business model of video games and day one patches like yeah the game release is broken and on that same day we'll fix a part of that i imagine what would happen if the people who made video games were unionized and didn't have like ridiculous deadlines imposed on them where they could actually work on a game and get it to like a really good level before they released it so that didn't have to happen imagine a world where that was a thing yeah imagine right (laughs) imagine and when you mentioned like narratives in video games i was i've been recently playing cyberpunk because i just don't have anything else going on in my life right now um i'm on brain leave which is different from dome leave dome leave a lot more fun brain leave is when your brain doesn't work and you have to not go to work for a couple of weeks don't worry there's nothing in cyberpunk that's that needs your brain to dissect or anything don't worry no this is this is the thing I've done. This is like my thing is like audiobooks and mindless video games. So I'm running around doing all the like side quests in Cyberpunk. And oh. there are so many. There's so many. The, the amount of writing that they had to put in like is outrageous. The the actual storyline's like seven or eight hours. I've been playing and I just barely am getting all of these like side quests done. And they unlock more side quests the more you do. And someone's written this insane amount of copy to do all this stuff. I think The Witcher is even more egregious example of that. Even though I do like that game, I mm-hmm. <laughs> surprise, surprise, I don't necessarily like Cyberpunk. Um, but that's not a hero there. It's not. Can't get game. into that, especially not this late <laughs> into the episode. But uh, it's, well, you know, it, it is not. It is just cyber. It's not. There's no punk. There's just. It's just. I don't know. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's just aestheticism. Cyberpunk's always been reactionary and bad. <laughs> well, okay. we can have a new discussion about that but uh, go listen to uh, our uh, Flavel Goldmine episode if you want to know what happens if there's just aestheticism and no meaning behind it mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, right so yeah, but yeah plug like the Witcher like at least has meaningful dialogue or like at least there's some attempt at like creating recreating the prose that is like the where uh, the literature of the books are based off of cyberpunk in my humble opinion is uh, other than its little uh like it's once again it's verbal aesthetics of like having an in-world language which i find hilarious but that's not a hint there um is that dialogue is so straightforward and so empty 
Like I love all those side quests, and you do a side quest, and it doesn't doesn't. Never mind. This is gonna get too, too too much into the game. I'm so sorry. Never mind. I was gonna shut up now. But also, like with like The Witcher, how they just came out with this patch to like break the game. It's this same problem of if you don't own an actual version, your version that you do own can be taken away from you if you don't disable updates, right? So I um I mean I'm thinking about this a lot. We were just talking about like streaming a, a second ago and like the algorithms take away all this media. Like you don't have a broadcast catalog anymore. You don't get a TV guide telling you what was on. So if I had a TV guide from the 70s, I could show you what was airing when. Yes. I can't show you what you watched or what America watched. Um, one, because Netflix like owns that data and derives value from it, so they need to keep it private. But also, there's there's very little manifestation of like what you actually did and saw. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Like a, a lot of those Netflix statistics, that's like, oh, most watched this week, or et cetera, et cetera. None of that is uh, verifiable. It's all yep. like that's what they say. So you know, you can believe it, or you know, we we have no way of knowing, no way of checking, no way of doubting that uh, con- concretely because those are uh, uh, incredibly uh, financially important information that thus the public has no access to. Definitely. Why would a multi-billion-dollar company lie, though? Like you know. I, for one, could never think of a reason why it would uh, give asymmetrical information. I don't know. Well, I mean, that's kind of the problem with algorithms to begin with is they're black boxes and you don't actually know how they work. And so how do you verify that the information they're pulling out is actually good information or whatever? So, but yeah, that's a completely different tangent. Yeah. Even people working at some of those companies don't know how their own algorithm works, which I think is like, oh, that, that's ringing so many bells for me. Once again, I'm not going to get into it. Don't worry. But that's, oh, that's, that's, hmm. Yeah. When those Google engineers were like getting fired and then I found out that like no one at Google knows how Google works. Like yes. the search engine, like very few engineers actually work on the search part of the business anymore. So all these people were like, yeah, I don't know. It, it's it does something. But yeah, that was wild to me. Vibes based. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well. The moment like your own runs again, one of your main apparatuses is working in such a Byzantine way that you no longer understand how it works. It is a irresponsible to keep on going. I understand that it, within once again the capitalist system uh, stopping and not growing is not allowed ever. Uh, once again, that's a whole thing. But like M M B, it's okay. Well, I kind of don't have a B, but that that first part is so important down to two. Okay, so that's well, like with these like companies that like like Audible and did Audible start with Amazon or was it bought by? Pretty sure it got acquired. Yeah. So often. Like companies will start out and they'll be doing their thing. And then as soon as they go public, as in as soon as they make their stocks where you can buy stock in their company, then you are then beholden to stock, like people who buy your stocks. And so you always have to scale and innovate and do more and more and more. And that's often where a lot of these problems come in. If we're going to be operating within this capitalist system, that's where it often happens is when you actually make your company public and then have to constantly be going more and more and more and bigger just so that you continue to grow. Like the quote growth mindset is where a lot of these problems come in as well. Yeah. And you can just have infinite growth, right? That's totally a thing. Yeah. Absolutely achievable. Yeah. Yeah. It will never run into any problems. Like there's not a, definitely not a finite set amount of resources or markets or anything. So it's a very historically defensible position that that is possible. Actually, (laughs) of course. Yeah. The tendency of profits is to remain upward. 
forever. Line goes up. Just because you want to. We live in the greatest market to ever live, to ever exist. That did, um, that has been something that I thought about a couple of times where when we're going back to translations, speaking of Marx, I really think that like a lot of the problems of understanding Marxism is that we're we're stuck with like a hundred year old translation at this point. I think if you retranslated Capital from like the beginning, you probably could understand it better. But like you're stuck with all this terminology because I just got a book on like Marxist uh, analysis applied to 21st century problems. And the, the first chapter is just like Capital Volume 1, okay? And it explains Capital Volume 1, like the first like 10 chapters and like a page and a half, two pages. And it's they're using clear language about like use value, value, value. What is Mark ta- Mark's talking about? How does value actually become manifested? Like, uh, so translation uh, can cause like clarity and loss of clarity over time, I guess. I mean, I didn't realize how fucking goth Marx was until oh, yeah. um, I listened to an episode of, 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 of course, Horror Vanguard, where John explained what that like all whatever dissolve into air and how that's a very bad translation that it's like Galerta, which is like this like weird, like food jelly, weird, like gross substance that's like made at, like made of scraps that's like, you know, poor people like food that's like absolutely disgusting and it's like it's like gross and awful and so like that even that i just like i didn't know that until like i listened to a friend say it (laughs) so and and, like that thing about translation is really interesting because like how in in what ways do the translations or the versions that we engage or understand of it like they become sort of consolidated like to give an example Mm -hmm. um i don't like him but uh, it's somewhat unescapable orwell's uh, was Animal Farm. Yeah, it was translated into Portuguese for, or at least Brazilian Portuguese, a long time ago. I don't remember the first one, and I, I don't have the curiosity to find out. Into the Animals Revolution. That's like the more traditionally known title of the book in Portuguese. Really? We, yeah, that's that's how I read it. I read it as Animal Revolution, and it, it only recently, I think, last year or the year before, uh, when Orwell like uh, sort of the the copyright ran out along those lines, and then every single fucking publishers publishing it again uh, there were changes to the title where it was Animal Farm in Portuguese as well and I was mortified at it it's like, it's like <laughs> I mean because there are two things like one is it a more faithful translation sure but in others in another sense like it's more well it's familiar as with it under a different title in this country so is this what is this achieving is this being positive is this being negative like I'm not against retranslation but especially with the title uh what effects does that create and like what is that doing it's like making this very classic book like be presented in a very different way so just uh, uh, just something that came up to me is like talking about translation how how that can affect not just b- both the meaning and how we are introduced or, or shown these books i mean that's yeah yeah i'm gonna cut there. i'm not gonna go well, in if a library it. like either a you know, library in Brazil, you know, collecting which version do they collect? Do they make sure to get both? Or in the United States, um, you know, because often public libraries um, will try to have um, some sort of bilingual collection or academic libraries will have bilingual collections, mm-hmm. normally depending on the, the population around them. Which version would they get? Would they get both? Do they have space and budget for both? You know, do they get the one that maybe their like Portuguese communities, like families back in Brazil would be more familiar with? Or do they get like this more quote accurate one? Well, yeah. And yeah. that's if they can even get a copy of 
the Brazilian title to begin with, too. Yeah. So, like, American publishing is so English-based that I, I can imagine that, you know, like, maybe somebody would find the, like, original Portuguese or Brazilian Portuguese title, like, more comforting, like, more of a reminder of where they came from, but, and want that version, but then the, the library can't get it because it doesn't exist in or it doesn't get republished. We were talking about versioning of translations now. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And does like the title or whatever, like, does that affect your experience of reading it? Like Pan's Labyrinth, the movie, El, 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 El Labyrinto Delfano, like that is not the, that is not what that is translated. And how does that change this like, you know, fucking anti-fascist, like spooky fantasy movie, <laughs> like how we how we watch it, right? Yeah, and in what way do these different changes, versions and translations mar do, not only are they translations or, or offering this to another people, another culture, another language, but are also marking their own identity there? Like uh, to give an example, like The Godfather in in Brazilian no in, in Portugal's Portuguese it was quite literal that uh, fam familiar relationship. It's um, o padrinho, uh, which is that the Godfather it, it, with a very familiar relationship. It doesn't have the the other connotations. Um, in port in Brazilian Portuguese, quite interestingly, it is uh, something along the lines of the powerful boss. So very different impacts and very different relationships. That's like. We, we, on the one hand, we lose that familial relationship, but we maintain the impact of what that the godfather's power is. Yeah. I was, I, I was thinking about this too, because I've been watching some anime recently, and some of the ones I'm watching are basically impossible to translate into English because the whole plot revolves around some ambiguity in the Japanese writing system or something. So there's oh, no God. way you could translate this into like a dub. But even then, just watching the subtitles go by, and then because I know a little Japanese, catching something and be like, oh, that's an interesting way that they translated that, or why the hell did they do that? That's completely makes no sense. That was unnecessary. Yeah, it's uh, running into how it impacts the transition really impacts the experience. And you can only catch it if you're kind of experiencing both at the same time as you do with like subtitles. Yeah. I mean, to, to give an example and something like I think I briefly talked about in our year in review episode, like one of the things I watched last year was uh, the entirety of Bob's Burgers. And the way language and puns and, and, and language games play in that TV show. I have writing, no idea how you translate a pun. <laughs> oh, it's a nightmare. It's a bloody nightmare. It's like you try to find the closest possible equivalent in the language and it usually doesn't work. So you have to come up with another pun from somewhere else. It's and it's deeply entertaining because like sometimes it says something entirely different. Sometimes it really works by talking about something else because like I, I can't come up with anything right now but it's just how do you really convert certain things you, you don't you try to find some approximation that like gives that funny or weird or interesting idea that the original was doing and it, it's as Justin was saying it's like you only truly get both or, or like the experience of both if you know both languages to a degree and are following them both kind of at the same time I think the most successful pun translation that I've ever seen uh, where it's the same thing but in both languages is Jesus Christ is then queso Cristo or something. <laughs> yeah, queso Cristo. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> no, 
Oh my God, Frank, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's great. That's it's awesome. like the best one. It's like, that's, that's proof that God's real is that that pun works. <laughs> Not that language families are a thing and that all of those words share similar roots or anything. <laughs> the one that I'm thinking of is there was a, a pun on one of the characters names, which was Edu. And they were rhyming it with other like angels' names. They were calling the character an angel, but it only works. You couldn't translate that because he was saying Gabrielu, Rafaelu. But if you the the you would have to change the character's name to make that pun work. And so that actually brought me back to like piracy. Is a lot of those fan subs would just teach you Japanese words because it's like we're not going to translate this every time. We're just going to put the Japanese word and we're going to explain to you what that word means at the top. All according to Keikaku. Keikaku exactly. means plan. That's how that happens. <laughs> and it's better. Amazing, you know what? It's fucking better. <laughs> I mean, the commitment to do that. I mean, like uh, an example that I, I played and like how they did that adaptation, that's a familiar localization as well, like a Phoenix Wright. With, like Phoenix all the Wright. names are our puns and like uh one example because it's my name frank saw it he saw it uh, and so on and so on and like there's a there's one version of the game or of one of the side games that was never published in the west and then it was fan translated and it still maintains the same level of puns and localization and effort it's like this is fan work and like how they went to the same lengths of trying to achieve the same result I love Phoenix, right? Phoenix, right? So fun. Somehow, this just reminded me of the whole. I'm sorry to bring this up, but the supernatural episode and how what what was it? it like the Spanish version was like translated differently. So like, Castillo uh, went candy in yeah, Spanish. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> God. So for those of you who aren't aware, in Supernatural, there's an angel and then a hunky dude. Um, and they this were supposed to kiss podcast. For, for a whole long time, for years, like over a decade. And they never did, but we all thought they were going to. And then the angel confessed his love to the hunky guy. Literally, I Dean, I love you or whatever. And he got sent to super mega hell for being a fruit. And Dean just goes, Cass. And then <laughs> Cass gets sent to Super Mega Hell for being a fruit. But this happened during the 2020 election. <laughs> so we were all just delirious anyway. And then like a week later when the Spanish localization came out, <laughs> Cass goes like, Te amo. Like, Dean, Te amo. And then like Cass responds, uh, me too. Like, Cass, a, a tea or something. Like that, and so Destiel went canon in Spanish. <laughs> the localization was what gave the fans what they wanted after fifteen fucking seasons of this. No one expects the Spanish love confession. <laughs> it was my favorite meme to come out of that. That's amazing. No one expects the Spanish love confession, but anyway, that's that's Destiel with Sadie and Jay, <laughs> chronically on Tumblr. Yeah, I have I have learned it by proxy. Yeah, but it, that does remind me of like the the like golden age of anime in Mexico because it was too expensive to make cartoons in Mexico at the time, but it was really really cheap to license anime for uh, translation in the eighties. So that's why a lot of of anime is well established in Mexico simply because they've been been bringing it in and translating it for. A really long time. Also, a huge market. Mm-hmm. They really a- love Dragon Ball Z over there. It's insane. 
We oh, do yeah. too. Yeah, it's really popular. Real, real, uh, real quick. That's just a cool anecdote. Um, but it's uh, in Mexico, like they just like hosted like there was there was this I I don't know like the culmination of like a season of like Dragon Ball or something, and mm-hmm. they hosted like an immense party. And like a bunch of people showed up, and like Toei, the the rights and copyright holder to Dragon Ball, was like, "No, you can't!" And like tried to sue the Mexican government, and like the Mexican government was like, "What? What do you want us to do? <laughs> like, do you want us to send in the police force?" And like, yeah, yeah, essentially, it's like, yeah, we're not going to do that actually. So, and so just this this cool uh, note on like community can uh, essentially, if the community is large enough can give the middle finger to copyright holders and like license holders and whatnot. I think that's cool, essentially. That is cool. No copyright law in the universe is going to stop me! That's right, Sonic. That's, uh, wow. Oh my god. (laughs) That's a real Sonic clip, that's not AI. Are you serious? Oh, Sonic dubs are insane. Yeah. No, the Sonic cartoons are always like really just out there, because no one pays attention to them, and they just have off-the-wall weird plots, and they're really cool. But no, it was also the the Japanese embassy sent a letter to the Mexican government because I live right next to Mexico. And so uh, I was teaching about copyright at the time. And so I would bring this story up as it happened. It was the finale of Dragon Ball Super. Yeah. And uh, the Japanese embassy sent the Mexican government a letter and was like, please stop just doing piracy. We have to license public viewings. And it was like, nah, we're not doing anything about that. Oh, thank you for correcting me. I'm sorry for uh, uh, the, I don't know. I thought oh, it was the company, the Toei, that sent oh, also Probably they did it too. But yeah, but the funnier part was that it was the embassy. It was like, <laughs> please do something. And <laughs> it's like, nah, we're not gonna. But that, I think that also shows something really cool, how like these very different products from a very different culture can find acceptance really deeply. And like that is the case for a lot of, especially and Japanese media. this is why piracy media. is good. Yes. 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 Uh, <laughs> but like um well an obvious example is uh, not as obscure but woody the woodpecker is a lot more popular in brazil than in other places like it's really it's, yeah it's still a meme and it's still well known today it just had a great reception here because it it maps onto certain cultural figures and exceptions of like a con man or something some huh. like that like woody woodpecker uh which is really odd but uh, a more obscure one is the 60s japanese maybe 50s to 60s black and white japanese live action show national kid by national radio which was essentially an ad uh for national radio and he's a weird superhero that is called via radio uh by kids and somehow it was very popular in brazil uh to the point where like a couple of years ago there was like a, a special box set thing with a with a special cap, with a t-shirt thing, kind of collector stuff, but it's like, it's this very obscure thing that no one else in the world cares about, not even Japan at this point, but here (laughs) it did find a following that is still significant, just because it's entirely bonkers. And, And then who owns the art at that point? If it's more important to people in Brazil than it is in the people than it is in the country of origin, can you rightfully say that that's more of a Brazilian media at this point than it is a Japanese media? Like that also, I feel like that gets brought up in a lot of fan communities too, is who who owns the media, the people that consume it, the people that create it. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, that that reminds me of actually a good book that I can't believe I didn't think of until now and it would have been great to put in the notes but it's called How to Read Donald Duck which was in the news not that long ago I'll put a link to it 
in the notes, but it was a book written in Chile. And the premise of the book was like how American culture influences and impacts Latin America. Right. And this is a book that, and the main part of the book is like the Donald Duck comics were way more popular in Latin America than the, the cartoons. So the comics had this huge like fan base and people were reading them all the time. And it was talking about like, how do the comics do U.S. imperialism, like do U.S. propaganda, right? Because like, you know, I mean, Donald Duck has like always been like a highly propagandized, like the, those Disney properties have always been highly propagandized. I mean, he was the one in um, Der Fuhrer's face, right? Yeah. Donald yeah. Duck. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, the book was uh, during the coup. This book was burned. I think it was, and like most of the original, like first editions of these are like destroyed in Chile. I think a lot of them were either burned or I think they were like captured on a cargo ship and just like thrown overboard or something. But it, it got a republication a few years ago and that pulled it back into the news. But my library does have one of the 70s copies. And it's a nice little book. Nice. I mean, that's such an interesting thing about like uh, media as an extension of like imperialism is really interesting to me. Like my favorite example is, is this DC comic edition where the Joker becomes the ambassador of Iraq or something like the governor of Iraq. Like It's just (laughs) so tremendously blatant or it's Iran. I'm so sorry. I don't know which one it was, but that's just like, like I, yeah, no. Right. So that is just, we live in a society folks. No, I, I have, I have a counterexample to that, Leon, no, if you can believe it. No, I can't take it. it. <laughs> the Transformers cartoon wikia has oh, some yeah. of the craziest stuff you've ever seen. Where um, I, 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 I'm going to regret saying this, but it, it's a thing. It's on there. At one point, the big, bad, bad Transformer, Megatron, is or someone else like is the ambassador of fic- fictional Middle Eastern country, Carbombia. <laughs> Yeah, it, it continues to get worse. But yeah, that's just what came off the top of my head. Yeah, I love it when they stop trying. Yeah, just say the quiet part out loud. <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. let the intrusive thoughts win on me. Like, it's just, oh, Christ. Yeah, like normally there's some layers to it. Like, oh, you have to like think about like, I don't know. Like, oh, the, like the, there can be la- like layers of like, oh, these groups of people mean less because whatever. And like, especially within fiction and fantasy and sci-fi, this is like such a problem. But I love it when they just... <laughs> Like, fuck it. Uh, I rock bad, actually. (laughs) It's it's just, I don't know. Oh, I found the article. Uh, It's the Socialist Democratic Federated Republic of Carbombia. Gotta toss the socialists in there. Of course, I, yeah, of gotta course toss. The socialist, yeah. yeah. I mean, I do love that the the, the wiki has the the tone that um, uh, of the like the sub the subtitles for the the images and stuff. This is canon, people. This is so canon. <laughs> Ever since Karl Marx wrote the uh, automobile manifesto, it's it's has been a tragedy for the world. Ah, media. So, what conclusions did we draw today? Uh, cartoons are bad. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely bad. Yeah, cartoons are bad. <laughs> uh, I think a conclusion that I would draw is that bad faith and on the defense 
things regarding uh, arguments regarding the differences between media means that we can't actually have these types of discussions about the what differences there are between media and then if there are issues with those differences then we can't address them or do anything about them because we're always on the defense or always doing like bad faith arguments definitely and i think like these these discussions are a fun and good to have and like you know let's talk about like the ontological perceptions of art slash media and but we should never forget that sadly we do live in a society as the warrior poet joker would say and this society sadly is a capitalist one and i think this should be once again we should like as a formality we should just say hey uh, capitalism bad because this this and that and then we can move on to having this ontological cool little philosophical discussion you know because it, it sadly affects everything yeah i think like what i would draw attention to and then and it to, to the to the discussion and to your whole podcast is that you? There are a lot of like philosophical, theoretical, artistical discussions that I mean, me and Leo myself, we generally have. But there's also, and, and this was really great, like real material uh, realities to that, especially given libraries. Like, how do you th- thinking about how? Oh, we, you don't own the license, or you don't have uh, the particular version or book. Like that is a problem in itself. But like when thinking about storing that or being able to display it or to offer it to people to lend it like that like how is that reality or those conditions compromised by this system and these structures like amazon does so uh, i think just it's how that affects you all librarians and libraries and uh, our general engagement with all that is is deeply affected by all that and sometimes that that can be left aside a bit and it shouldn't yeah the physicality of of media just Um, And the scale that it takes to distribute it through libraries, but also just like through publishers and stuff. It's it's a scale that's really large. And then it creates all these infinite different versions and manifestations. But yeah, there's always a physicality to it somewhere, either that you own it, it's on your device, you lose the access on your device, or you have multiple physical versions that you get to keep, but are possibly prohibitively expensive or take a lot of physical space to store. So we make compromises on them. I think that's everything. Was there anything else that you wanted to let our listeners know to find you on? Or do you want them to leave you alone? But uh, Twitter's Twitter's not really working. I had to turn off my two-factor authentication today. Oh, Lord. Because that because oh, wow. it's it's not available unless you pay for Twitter Blue. So I just turned it off because instead of getting locked out of my account. Anything else you want for people to find, find you while they can? <laughs> online on, well, we, we do a lot of like the, the Patreon stuff that has text that we've written and that are open. Uh, whereas uh, it's patreon.com forward slash left page. But looking for the left page or here be media, uh, you, you can find us on, on main platforms and we'll have our, our links in your show notes, I hope. I'm grabbing them now. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have knuckles on your uh, soundboard talking about a glass ceiling as well? Uh, Since we talked about, I think this is very important. Real quick, I'm so sorry, everyone. I, I do have. Uh, that's a great. That's a great canon actual aired episode moment. Gender? What is this? Soviet Russia? Oh, that's okay. best I got. Oh, <sighs> work on it before we get back. Okay. That's, um, yeah, I'm going to get some more <laughs> Sonic drops. So. Um, everyone's going to love. No, I'm going to. I mean, let's be real. I'm going to get more Biden drops. I'm going to get like a Ooh, million yeah. of of these because I'm obsessed with them. 
I'm having such a great time watching him argue about Fortnite. It's great. Oh, yeah. And talk about weed is my favorite ones. The uh, oh yeah the the um, yeah it has a couple of words that I'm not going to say, but yeah it's yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, nothing oh, has yeah. ever it's been as good. good as Biden actually really talking about bathhouses in a real actual debate that happened. I may be Irish, but I'm not stupid. Uh, like he talked about bathhouses in what <laughs> I promised that wasn't AI. That was a real thing that happened. Oh, pretty good. Gay rights. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, thank you so much for having us. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. It was, as they say, everything. <laughs> Great time. People are going to have to go listen to the Velvet Goldmine episode. They do. Yes, yeah. that was good. And good night. <laughs>